For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Well, good morning, church. Yeah, you know, I did have a gripping illustration to start my message, but for right now, my mind is occupied with that image that Laura planted in my head of Jacob doing interpretive dance. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. And uh, for some reason, the thing that that's, that's linking to is uh, Chris Kattan back in the 90s on Saturday Night Live. He would all dress in black, and he would do this funky interpretive dance from got character from now you're going to Google that, but it, that's what's in my head right now. So Laura, it's all your fault, sweetie. So it's all your fault. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that kind of also dates me that I know who Chris Kattan actually is since he's a nobody now and uh, no longer on the celebrity scene and that kind of thing. Uh, but you know, I, I've been in ministry for quite uh, a while, several decades now. And through the decades, on a regular basis, I have had conversations, I would say, with people who come at Christian, to the Christian faith from two opposite ends of the continuum. You know, first there's the legalistic end of the continuum where uh, they are seeking to earn God's favor and God's blessing in some way through their actions and through their works, the things they do, the things they don't do. And then there's the group on the other end of the continuum who is, uh, it seems, always uh, just living however they want to live. Antinomianism, right? There's no law, there's no requirement, there's no sanctification. I can do whatever I want to do, live however I want to live, serve God, don't serve God, doesn't matter. I'm saved, uh, my sins have been forgiven, all is good between me and God. And those two ends of the spectrum just seem to always come around, even within churches. Churches can drift from one end of the spectrum to the other in that way. Well, back in the last century, there was a, a respected theologian and teacher. He was uh, R.C. Sproul's favorite professor all through his uh, college years, John Gerstner. And uh, Gerstner wrote extensively on the, the false teachings of the cults that are in our world. He also wrote extensively about uh, maybe false uh, doctrines and teachings that come through Catholicism, especially as it relates to justification by faith and the importance of being justified by God's grace through faith. Yet at the same time, he recognized that Christians can have this misunderstanding of the gospel and as a result can run to the opposite end of the spectrum and really embrace human works, righteousness, or that other end of the spectrum, antinomianism. And so he wrote about that, and one of the things that he said was this. He quoted from a hymn uh, that many of us know the words to. On the cross, Jesus accomplished something he intended. Uh, that's not the, that's last week, guys. So I don't know how that got in right there but you might want to erase that. Here's what he wrote. You cannot, for one solitary moment, say anything other than nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We are justified by faith alone, he writes. But we are not justified by a faith that is alone. Therefore, if you really cling to that cross, if you really do, what uh, you say you do, you will be abounding in the works of the Lord and will be living out an exceptional pattern of behavior. 
That's the quote I wanted to give you. Apparently, I neglected to erase last week's little statement. <laughs> so, I'm human. So, what, it was, what is Gerstner getting at there? This idea that in the Christian life, there will be works, right? And the works of the Lord. That's our word for the day. And it's a word that appears 181 times in the New Testament. And yet it is a word that is often abused and misunderstood from a variety of perspectives. The legalist, as I mentioned, they will overemphasize works. The person who drifts to the antinomian end of the spectrum, they will underemphasize works. And, and still others, and maybe this is accounting for a large number of us even here this morning, we have this uneasy, uncomfortable feeling that in some way, works and grace are actually incompatible. And so we end up living out the Christian life in this kind of quasi no man's land where we are confused and uncertain and there's a lot of indecision about how grace and work go together or even if they do go together. And so this morning, I'm hopefully going to help us all clear up some of that confusion. Maybe we can get out of that no man's land and, and understand by the end of the message that, you know, God's grace is at work in all of us. And that grace is what actually produces the works which are so important to be in the life of every Christian. So we're going to do a deep dive in this passage, break it up into two sections. The first section says that to experience the power of the gospel we first have to understand how works and grace relate to one another. Listen, verses 8 and 9, these are famous verses. Let's wake up this morning. Let's read them out loud together. Ready? Here we go. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, great passage of Scripture. And it's actually touching on a tension in this passage between grace and works that begins all the way back at the beginning of the passage. You see, we have this tension due to this, uh, our fallen nature, our yearning to see ourselves spiritually good and able to earn God's grace, that we are basically righteous, good, spiritually acceptable before God, and we, maybe we need to modify our behavior, maybe we need to do different things, but in doing so, it allows us to be acceptable before God. The earlier parts of this chapter show us that this isn't possible. This is absolutely impossible. Verse 1 says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are born walking in sin, living in sin. The, the formal word is depravity, total depravity. It means that we are thoroughly corrupted by the presence of sin in such a way that we cannot do anything that is spiritually pleasing to God. We don't have the capacity in ourselves as natural human beings when we are born into this world to do one single thing that pleases God from a spiritual, eternal perspective. 
We can do things that are great for civilization. We can do some things that are beneficial to humanity in general. But even those good deeds are corrupted and polluted by sin. So even at our very best, our very best is corrupted and polluted and tainted by sin. And so we stand before God desperately in need of something from outside of ourselves to intervene and to rescue us from this body of sin that we are born with and in turn reconcile us to our Creator. That something from outside of ourselves is grace. We are saved, this passage tells us, by grace through faith. Remember, we, we talked about salvation earlier in the summer. That was one of our important words. What does that word mean? And we, this passage says that salvation does not come by our works, but by grace. Again, tension between grace and works. So if you rely upon works, you will never have your sins forgiven. You'll never be reconciled to God. It's important for us to understand what that word works means, what that word grace means, right? Let's start with the word works. It's actually an easier word to, to define and to understand. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In this passage, Jesus is not talking and, and equating good works with like spiritual disciplines, right? You know what I mean by spiritual disciplines, right? This is, these are the things that we participate in in order to grow stronger. We're going to talk about some of these next week when we get, or in the next week after that, when we get to the word sanctification, right? Uh, these, like, like you might have read your Bible this morning and had quiet time with God this morning, maybe over a cup of coffee or a Diet Coke. You read scripture and you prayed and you, maybe you sang songs, you, you poured out your heart before God. That, that practice of meeting with God, that's a spiritual discipline and it's good and it's beneficial to us as Christians, but that's not the good works that Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 5, and it's not the good works that we have in Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus is referring to our personal actions and to their ability to either glorify God and bless other people or not. When we think about good works, that word works is generally associated with deeds, with actions, and with maybe even our words that are the result of, of uh, our effort, our labor for the Lord and for his glory to, to bless other people. Works, good works, can the target of that can be inside the church. We have people right now who are over with our children. They're serving them. They're loving on them. They're teaching them the gospel. They're singing and praying and interacting with them. That, those are good works. They are blessing and working for the benefit of those little children, right? And that's important to see. That with good works, the, the target audience of good works is someone other than yourself, right? You're trying to give someone else, and you seek and desire to give someone else just a taste, perhaps, of the love of God which we experience in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good works. So what about grace? We're saved by grace, not by works. And obviously, verses 8 and 9 has a tension, a conflict between grace and works. So what do we mean by grace? Most of us have, a, 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 have a, a basic, simple definition in our head, right? Grace is God's unmerited favor, right? Good, exactly. One more time. Grace is God's unmerited favor. 
favor. Sure, we learned that. Um, grace is God uh, giving us something that we do not deserve, right? Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's him giving us something that we do not deserve. Certainly, grace is not less than those basic, simple definitions, but grace is also much more than that, a whole lot more than that. And church, we cannot forget the whole lot more of what grace is. Because if we do, what we'll end up embracing is a cheap view of God's free grace. We will unintentionally do something like maybe a We'll, we'll put uh, grace like in the same category as oxygen, right? Oxygen is everywhere. God gives it to us. We need it for life, and it's, it's just something that we take for granted. It's everywhere to everyone, and it's, and it's free. It's just there. It's almost like God just waves the hand and boom, oxygen, boom, there's grace. It's free. And when we do this, we don't understand grace. Because church, God's grace is not free. God's grace is not free. I mean, this, this is what we looked at last week with our word from last week, atonement. That word atonement is so important. God's grace does not have to be earned by us because Jesus earned it for us, right? God's grace in the gospel tells us that Christ on the cross when he shed his blood, he purchased God's grace. He made it possible so that God could give us grace because he satisfied God's wrath towards our sin. That's why this word atonement is so important. In his death, and his sacrifice on the cross, God's wrath is now satisfied, and as a result, he earned God's grace for us. Jesus purchased for us on the cross grace the faith that we need so that we can even believe in Jesus. So grace is not free. From our perspective, it's free, right? We don't earn it from our perspective, but from God's perspective, grace is not free. It's very expensive. It's very costly. It costs the life of Jesus Christ. So we as a result, no, we, we do not earn God's grace. We don't earn God's approval and God's blessing. Why? Because Jesus earned it for us. And so while there's nothing wrong with the definition that grace is God's unmerited favor, that grace is God giving us that which we do not deserve, we need to always have in the back of our mind, Christian, we need to always, if we ever use that simple definition, at least there needs to be a quiet voice in our head saying, yes, grace is God's unmerited favor because Jesus merited it for us. That, that grace is God giving us something that we do not deserve because God gave Jesus something that we do deserve his wrath towards our sins. That always has to be in the back of our minds, framing our understanding of grace, or else we end up with a cheapened, lessened understanding of God's grace. I appreciate a, a basic definition, a simple definition that Jerry Bridges has written about and, and has written. He says, grace is God's favor through Christ to people 
who deserve his disfavor. Read that with me out loud. Grace is God's favor through Christ to people who deserve his disfavor. Do you see the beauty of that? And how no, our grace, the grace God gives us, is not free in the ultimate eternal sense of the word, not at all. So all of us have probably sensed this tension of grace and works. We are saved by grace, not by works. Work salvation in any form is a denial and a repudiation of God's grace in Jesus Christ in the gospel. Yet, at the same time, we're not to disregard the importance of good works. Our good works actually either deny or validate the presence of the gospel of grace in our lives. So they're very important. We can't, we can't ignore them. It's like Gerstner said, if you cling to the cross of Jesus, you will be abounding in the works of our Savior. This is a reality of the Christian life. So let's, let's look at the second aspect of this passage, which kind of gets into that idea a little bit more. God's sovereign plan for every Christian includes good works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, there's a couple of very important concepts in this little verse. First of all, that word workmanship, it comes from the Greek word uh, poema. And poema in the Bible is normally associated with God's creation, God's power as he created the universe. You see it again in, in Romans chapter 1 when he says that God has created everything and in the glory of creation, humanity can look at it and can see all of the attributes of God those not all, but the eternal attributes of God, his power, his grandeur, you know, his, his, just his sense of, of incredible um, creativity and intelligence and design that is here. And all this can be seen in creation. It's what, what, what the psalmist says in Psalm 19.1 when he says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and they proclaim his handiwork. Nature itself it glorifies God, his poema, his creation, his work. It glorifies him. It tells us that he exists. But here's the thing. The scriptures tell us something else that is incredible as nature is and as, as good a job as nature does in revealing God to us and letting us know that he exists. Humanity is an even greater example of God's creative genius. How about that? The scriptures, that's the position of scripture. Psalm 8, the psalmist says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In other words, you can imagine the shepherd sitting out there at night and he's seeing the whole display of the heavens before him and he looks at that and he feels like just a little speck in light of all of God's creation. And he says, what is man in light of this? Incredible creation, but then through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he realizes something. And in verse 5, yet you have made him, humanity, mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, as great as creation is, the design and creation of humanity is even greater 
than the stars and the universe that we live in. Just a little bit below the heavenly beings. And that says something about humanity, doesn't it? That, that tells us that every human being is invested with dignity regardless of their sex or their color or their skin or their nation that they live in or their economic situation. Every human being has this basic inherent dignity because every human being, even those who reject Christ, have been created in the image of God. There is something about humanity. We are not just another animal. You know, the manatees, as nice as they are, and the grand scheme of things are not as important as humans, okay? And, you know, I'm not anti-manatee, even though I've heard they taste like chicken. Um, so, bad joke. Um, <laughs> right? So we need, to, we need to understand our place there. But here's what this passage is telling us. This is why verse 10 is, is an incredible, that word poema is, is so cool, so neat. Verse 10 is telling us that God's true masterpiece isn't humanity itself. There's actually something greater. That word poema is a word from which we get poem, right? And it's a word that was used in, in the, the Greek language to refer to a, a, a great musical score, a great painting a great poem, a great work of art. In other words, literally, our English word for, that would best maybe reflect what he's saying here is masterpiece. We are God's, say it, masterpiece. Who is God's masterpiece? Humanity in general? No. Those who have been created in Christ Jesus. The masterpiece of God is due to what he does to us in changing us from death and sin to life in Jesus Christ. It's what he's referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God's greatest masterpiece is taking people who are dead in their trespasses and sins with no ability at all to trust and believe in Jesus, to receive the grace of God in the gospel who are destined to an eternity separated from God, God's greatest masterpiece is bringing that person to life spiritually, recreating them, giving them his grace and the ability to believe the good news of Jesus. That's God's greatest masterpiece. And this has incredible significance for every one of us here this morning who claim the name of Jesus as our Savior. So for everyone here who looks at themselves with a sense of disgust or you look at yourself for some reason with a sense of shame or you look at yourself and you don't see someone who is beautiful and important or valued in some way. Maybe you've had people throughout your life speak words into your life that create those kinds of ideas, those kinds of feelings and emotions. Understand God says that's all a lie that you are his masterpiece, that you are beautiful as you are, and he is making you into something that is even gonna be more beautiful as he changes us from glory to glory to glory. And at the end of that complete makeover that he's doing with us, we will for all of eternity 
reflect the beautiful glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing in us. We are his masterpiece. Augustine, the early church father, he, he touched on this, he wrote on this, and he said it's interesting that even Christians, even believers, we will, we will travel great distances and we will go and we will stand in awe of the mountains, he said, and we'll look at the grandeur of the mountains or we will travel down to the ocean and we will sit and we will watch the power of the waves and marvel at the, the strength and just the, that sense of, of awe that we get from God when we sit down at the ocean and look at the, at the waves. Or he said, perhaps you go down to the river in, in a valley and you, you sit there and the, the calm peace of that scene and then the, the fall foliage, the seasons, they change and the colors that come about and the, the palette of God's creativity is, is on full display. If Augustine was alive today, he said, or it's when you, you dive down to a reef and you put a spotlight on that reef and you realize there are not enough colors in our comprehension to, to, to explain what you see on a reef that is put under a true light. It's incredibly beautiful. And yet Augustine says, we do all of this and we pass by ourselves with that same sense of wonder. And his point is, as incredible as all of those things are, church, what God is doing in your life through Jesus Christ is even more wonderful, more beautiful, more of a masterpiece. So from this passage, and from verse 10, I hope you understand that. And no matter what is coming to your life and is in your past, God is redeeming you and you are his masterpiece. And then there's one final thought in this passage that I want us to walk away with this morning, that our good works are the result of God's grace at work within us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Very important for us to break this down, right? Verse 10, he says, for good works. We are created in Christ Jesus for, for. The word for is a purpose word. Why has God recreated us in the image of Jesus Christ? Why is God transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ? Why has God saved us, redeemed us from our sins for good works? Plain as day. And it's works which he has prepared beforehand. Now this, this is really cool. He's going back to chapter one. Chapter one, Ephesians chapter one, has one of the most beautiful, strong statements on God's sovereign grace as it relates to predestination and election and how God has chosen before the foundations of the world his people who he will redeem, who he will mark out, who he will save, who he will keep for all of eternity. Again, I mentioned last week, we will do this word before the summer is over with, promise, okay? I've gotten so many emails, are you gonna talk about it? We will, promise, okay? But what's interesting here is now Paul is saying not only has God predestined you for salvation, he has predestined you to accomplish certain good works for his glory and for his kingdom. Not only has he marked you out for salvation, he's marked you out for service. Not only has he chosen you to worship him for all of eternity, he's chosen you to work for him. And that's, that's got incredible implications because it's supposed to affect our lives. You know, back at the beginning of chapter 2, 
unredeemed humanity, all of us, we are, we are described as walking according to sin, following Satan. That word walk basically bookends this little passage, verses 1 to 10. Before Christ, we walk according to Satan. After Christ, we walk according to those works that God has ordained beforehand, that these good works will characterize us. And because of his gracious work in our lives and salvation, it puts us on a different trajectory. Our lives will now be lived out differently. We will behave differently. We'll get into that with sanctification. But then we will live and serve other people differently and for different reasons and different motives now that we walk by faith in Jesus Christ and we have this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And this walk that is characterized by good works, it comes about because of God's grace that is at work within us. So how does this apply to us? How does this make a difference? What do we do with this tension between grace and good works? So what, right? So what? Well, can I suggest to you this morning that in a sense, when we understand good works properly from a biblical perspective, that, it, that they actually serve as a diagnostic tool for our spiritual life. It's not a checklist. It's not a, a measuring, you know, like, okay, I'm more spiritual than Paxson because I have more good works, right? First of all, we know that will never be true. And secondly, that's not what, it's, what we mean at all, okay? In other words, let me, let me ask it to you like this. Maybe there's some of you here this morning that you're here, and you are, you're here because you're curious about Christianity. And perhaps for some reason in your heart, in your life, there is a growing sense of a need that you have, and you're wondering, is that need that maybe I need to be closer to God? I need to have a better relationship with God, and, and I don't know how to do this, so I'm going to go to church. Maybe you were raised in church as a child, and so you have a little semblance of understanding, but you're sensing something's not right in your life, and so you come in here this morning, and you're, you're wanting to be reconciled with God. You're cleaning up your life. You're living differently. You're trying to be nice to people instead of a jerk all the time or, or whatever. Well, well, this passage is a wonderful diagnostic tool for you. If that's you, if you're working to be better with God, to be okay with God, to be accepted by God, this passage says, man, you, you don't understand grace. You don't understand works. You, you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're never going to get where you want to be in that, in, in the trajectory you're currently on. Something has to change. And I really want to encourage you, if that's where you are this morning, listen, we've all been there. We all understand that desire to justify ourselves and to, to clean ourselves and to be more acceptable, and it's very tempting. But I do hope that you'll come talk to me after the service or you'll come to our, our care area over here to my left and let some of our pastors or Stephen ministers begin to walk with you so that you can understand the gospel and understand the beauty of God's grace that is free for us, but it wasn't free for Jesus. Or perhaps you're here and you claim to be a Christian. You, if I were to ask you, say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I've, I've received Jesus in my set of prayer when I was a child. But the, the reality is when you take this passage and you apply it to your life, your, your life is a life that you're not doing anything for God. 
You're just living however you want to live, doing whatever you want to do. And, and, and you know, if, if you actually do something for God and for the kingdom of God, it's, it's kind of an afterthought more than it's a way of life that is flowing out of who you are in Jesus. Uh, listen, this tension of grace and works, this is an important tension for you. Because if this is you, you know, at, at best, what's going on in your life is that you're in a, in a spiritual malaise. You, you are a lukewarm Christian in Revelation, the way Revelation describes it. At best, it's telling you there's something seriously, deeply wrong with your experience of the gospel and of Jesus Christ, and there needs to be some intentional deep diving into your heart to, to find out why the idols of your heart are more attractive than the Savior of your soul. That's the best case scenario of what's going on in your life. The worst case scenario, and the scenario that Jesus seems to insinuate is the more common scenario, is that you have a head knowledge of him, but you've never actually been born again. You've, you've never trusted in him. You, you don't have the heart knowledge of him. You're actually lost. You're, you're actually in a state of being the most dangerous of all critters, right? You think that you're a Christian, because of something that happened in your past. And there's no present reality to justify that opinion of yourself. So I hope that you'll take this tool and you'll look at your life and say, where am I really? Am I just sitting on the sidelines? You know, I'm just living for myself? Why is that the case? What's really going on in my heart? Best case, man, I need to do work with God. I'm denying the reality of my salvation. Worst case, there is no salvation. And then, of course, most of us here, I think, since I know you pretty well, you are following Christ. But I have no doubt there are some here this morning that you find yourself in a situation, in a state of existence that your service to God, your, your involvement in the kingdom of God, that rather than energizing you and blessing you and providing joy, it's actually sucking the life out of you. Have you ever been there? You ever been involved in the work of God and the kingdom of God? And, and at the end of the day, it's just like, oh, do I really? Why does that happen? How do you remedy that if you're going through it right now? The answer is in this passage, return, return to the gospel of grace that we find in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Go back and begin to meditate on the grace and the love of God that he gives us in Christ Jesus and let that motivate our works. That's the solution. Only the gospel can change our motivation and restore the joy of our salvation. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, let's meditate on this, okay? We are not saved by grace and then blessed by works. We are not saved by grace and then blessed by works. We are not saved by grace and then from that point on, do we earn God's favor and blessings and smile upon our lives because of our good works? If that's where we land this morning, we again have missed it, and the tension of grace and works has smacked us in the face. Okay? So to be clear, we are not saved by grace, and then, as we continue in the Christian life, blessed by works. Understand, as we come to the table this morning, at the cross, 
Jesus purchased everything we will ever need for this life and for the life to come. Every single blessing that we've ever had, every blessing that we have right now, which includes air conditioning in this building, every blessing that we will ever have in the future, all of these things have already been purchased for us by our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And you're not going to get more blessings from God and more favor from God and more smiles from God because you now turn around after this message and sign up for five more ministries to get involved in. You already have all the favor and blessings of God that you can ever get. You're going to get these things because Jesus died for you. This is the gospel of God's grace. We're saved by that grace and then throughout our life, We are blessed by God's grace. So even as Christians, we don't earn God's blessings through our works. We are saved by God's grace. We're blessed by God's grace, which he purchased. And then out of gratitude and love and joy for who we now are as God's masterpiece, that grace flows out and we want to bring others and serve others to help them get a little taste of what is the reality of our life in Jesus Christ. So God's grace is not earned. We don't work to get it. We work because we have already been given these things. And that's what this table, in part, symbolizes and brings to us this morning. So as we come to the table this morning, I want to invite everyone who's here who does know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to take this meal with us. This is the meal of God's children, the people of God, those who have that common bond as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a member of our church, but you do need to know Jesus, right? And and you do need to have been in some way acknowledged by a local church that you are a believer and that you are ready to take the Lord's Supper. And so, for example, parents, if you have your children with you, if if that hasn't happened yet with uh, either the elders of our church or some other church has, you know, talked with you and with your child and verified that their faith is genuine to the best that we can do that, then we ask that you use the Lord's Supper this morning as a teachable moment for your children. Maybe as an opportunity for you to go home and over lunch talk to them about their need of trusting in Jesus Christ. And the reason we make that distinction is because this is a sacrament. It is a sacred, sacrament, sacred meal. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, let a person examine himself and so eat of the the bread and drink of the cup. Why? Because if we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink judgment and condemnation to ourselves. And of course, what that, what that means is that, first of all, we are trusting in Christ. He's our Savior. Secondly, that to the best of our knowledge, uh, we are confessing and repenting sin. That we aren't holding on to grudges, for example, against another believer. If you have a grudge that you of uh, 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 falling out with a brother or sister, and, and this is in your heart and is eating you up, you need to pass by this meal and make things right with your brother, Jesus says. That would be an example of working, walking, taking it unworthily. It doesn't mean that you can't take it if you sin within the last two hours because some of you parents have kids and on your way here to church this morning, you sinned, right? 
I know what that's like. Um, that's not what it means at all. It just means that we aren't holding on to sin, that we aren't cherishing it. So let's start right there. Let's bow our heads for a moment. And let's do business with God at an individual level. And let's pray and ask him to cleanse us from our sins.